This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Cholly. Coming up on today's episode, really exciting, I've been up Big Ben. I've been working in Parliament since 2005 and I've never managed to do this before. So we had a lovely morning out, uh, basically to go and see all the incredible work they've been doing to restore the clock and the tower and uh, make sure that the whole the whole clock face is all being repaired and restored and everything so yeah find out what happened when i get went up on uh, up big ben to see uh, what they've been doing that's coming up on the podcast but first as ever we kick off with our columnist panel and on a thursday it is of course the columnists with night at the marriott india knight and james marriott on times radio india you've been following the amber heard johnny depp case in all its all its gruesomeness I've sort of been following it. I, it. It makes me really upset, actually, to, um, you know, news channels keep sort of blithely playing the really distressing audio. And even the news reports make me really upset. And I understand that people in the US and here are kind of glued to it. I'm not glued to it. I find it really, oh, gosh, these two people, you know, in a really toxic, dysfunctional relationship. And people were sort of all consuming it as entertainment and there's something really the matter with that I think I think you know it's yet another kind of domino that's fallen um and 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 this yeah I, I think it's so terrible I think it's terrible I think it should be sort of happening in private and we shouldn't be privy to it and I also think it does show that you know it's yet another thing actually there are lots and lots of them it does show that being rich and famous um doesn't preclude having a catastrophically awful personal life but yeah i mean more than that you wonder whether that's part of the problem yeah yeah the the the, the sort of being used to uh your whole life being played out in public actually adds an extra layer of awfulness to it yeah it absolutely does and it's almost as if you know it's almost as if they can't exist unless it's public unless it's performance or display. I don't know. I'm really, really disconcerted by it. I find it sinister, actually. Not. I mean, the content is sinister. What is ha- the, their relationship is sinister, and what went on in it, whoever you believe, is sinister. Also, I find it very weird that we're then invited to take sides. You know, as anybody knows who's had a bad relationship, there is usually, there is never one wholly innocent, blameless person, or rarely one innocent, blameless person. And they're 
clearly, it seems to me, both at fault to one extent or another. And this idea of, you know, I'm on her side, I'm on his side, I'm going to wave my little banner and put up my Johnny Depp bunting or my where my blow my Amber Heard tutor thing. You know, it's weird. It's very unhealthy and bad is what I think. It feels like there's a slight overlap in the in your column today, James, the rise of narcissism. And uh, well, I didn't know this either. <laughs> Apparently, there's a rise in, in, in witchcraft is having a revival. Yeah, this is, um, I mean, God, I'm almost, I was sort of writing about the uh, revival and rise of the supernatural, and uh, that trail almost does kind of feel supernatural in its kind of horror. Uh, like vampires or something draining each other's, um, mm. you know, life force away from each other. But yeah, and it's something that's kind of fascinated me for a while is I sort of collect it. You see all these kind of um, statistics coming out every so often and there's rising. So there are more witches in America than there ever have been. There are more than a million witches in America now. Um, at the beginning of the 1990s, only a few thousand. Belief in aliens is rising. Belief in Atlantis is rising. And I was sort of writing about this sort of, I think, this kind of why have we got this sort of strange supernatural supernatural mood? Why are things like tarot cards so popular? Astrology is very popular. Um, all kinds of quite super, unusually supernatural conspiracy theories. QAnon, for example, a conspiracy theory about um, you know sort of um, blood sucking elites ruling America. And I, I was sort of theorizing about why why this was and why this is all happening now. And I think. A lot of people would say it's to do with the decline of traditional religion, but I was saying that another sort of another thing that connects all these things is that they're sort of kind of weirdly sort of narcissistic versions of religious belief that have developed. So once upon a time, everybody feared witches and were te- they were all terrified of witches, and now people tend to believe that they are witches. Um, another thing that sort of uh, interests me is this kind of phenomenon of manifesting where you kind of chant your life goals to yourself and strongly visualize your future success and you kind of believe that with your personal willpower you can change the universe. And I thought this kind of weird theme of these slightly kind of narcissistic sort of weird spiritual beliefs um, that were kind of emerging everywhere. Um, just thing I always seem to kind of notice. There's also, and I know we've talked about this a bit before, India, this sort of fe- the way this feeds into conspiracy theories that actually... You know, I uh, don't think the vaccine works or, you know, it's all a plot to control my brain. That that sort of way, of it, it sort of it makes you more interesting. Um, yeah, you know. it's a way it's a way of being interesting and it's a way of being your own hero, you know, and it comes from the refusal to accept that, you know, we live in a blip in time and we're little meaningless ants. And it's a kind of desperate trying to claw some sort of forge, some sort of identity for yourself. Speaking of witchcraft, a really extraordinary thing happened to me about um, six years ago, I think it was. Um, I was having dinner with some people, one of whom was the now retired local vicar. I live in very, very rural Suffolk. Um, And uh, he was talking, as vicars often do, about absence of bums on seats on Sundays. And so I said a couple of kind of platitudinous things. And he said, yeah, but also it's the covens. And I said, sorry, excuse me. <laughs> I mean, he said, oh, well, it's the covens, you know, the witchcraft, you know, people do that instead. And he was absolutely matter of fact and absolutely deadpan. And I didn't know what to say. It's a, it's a, I, I had no, because uh, we've, we've talked, we've had, we've had witches on before, uh, actually marking sort of anniversaries of, uh, of, you know, historic ill treatment of witches rather than um, the rise of them. But maybe that's something that we should... Uh, uh, revisit and may, maybe the sort of the overlap, even with the sort of the Amber Heard Johnny Depp thing, is the, is the is the need to have a view, you know, that, yeah. that you have to be on one side or the other. That 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 yes, sort of, and it sort of makes you more interesting. You're rooting for like it's 
you know, Arsenal against Tottenham. Well, like it's a game, exactly. And as we all know, I think as anybody intelligent knows, you know, the truth is usually quite grey. It's very, very rarely black or white, unless you unless you sort of simplify things until they become the point where they become meaningless. So this at this need to constantly align yourself with the with what you consider to be the side of truth and right, particularly on social media is really kind of unhealthy and also bonkers. And also, nobody really cares what other people think, I think. <laughs> unless, unless they're colourists, obviously, in which case... Yeah. Of, course, uh, of, course. Care, of course. People care <laughs> deeply, care deeply for what we do. Deeply. Um, talking of uh, massive narcissists, Elon Musk uh, is uh, talking about he might charge politicians and businesses to use Twitter. Um, are, you, are you ready to fork out to pay to use Twitter, James? I know you. I mean, you're. Are you currently on it? I know you're often on it. Like, yeah, no, I'm. I'm, I'm on it at the moment. I mean, it's a pretty horror. It sounds like a pretty, it sounds like you know, it's a pretty horrible experience to have to pay for sometimes. Um, I've kind of reduced my. I've re I've reduced my Twitter usage fairly radically because I, I can find it a bit sort of miserable, and even when it's good and you're sort of addicted to it because it's good, it's, it's sort of bad. Cause you're checking your phone all the time. Um, I want to say I wouldn't pay for Twitter. I can imagine that I probably would pay for Twitter. I think journalists <laughs> especially feel like they have to have it. Um, I, 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 my, my, my personal plan for Twitter is that it should be a kind of um, a pay-to-tweet system. And if you're going to tweet something really nasty, you should be charged more. Uh, I'm sure lots of people would pay for the privilege, but um, at least it would at least it would cost them someone. So I think if you're going to go on Twitter and insult James Marriott, you should be charged a fiver for it. And I should get a proportion of the profits. I was going to say, where does that money go? Does that go uh, it goes to, to James you? Marriott, James Marriott, uh, James Marriott Therapy <laughs> Fund. Perfect. Where do you stand on this, Izzy? <laughs> um, I, no, I don't. I don't think the journalists do need to be on Twitter. I'm not on it anymore, and haven't been for I don't know a year and a bit. And um, my life is vastly enhanced as a as a result. I don't know. I think that the whole Elon Musk buying Twitter thing. And I was listening to something this morning. Somebody this morning when I was half asleep saying it's not actually a done deal and it could still go wrong. But anyway, the whole thing about Elon Musk buying Twitter is that he's a sort of spoiled, capricious child, you know, um, and the idea of him being in charge of this thing and, and, and going wherever his whims take him is so sort of off-putting, I think. Um, I think either everybody needs to pay for it or nobody needs to pay for it. I don't think you should pay for it according to your status or the number of your followers or what your profession is. Um, but I think unless you're Unless you're obsessed with politics or obsessed with the media, I think it's sort of, you know, it's really compared to Instagram and Facebook, it's nothing. It's a spec. Um, and I think, <laughs> we, I think we overestimate its importance to the average person. Well, that's the thing. I mean, David Cameron famously said uh, Twitter is not Britain. And, uh, you know, if, if it was, we'd, we'd be currently in sort of the fifth term of Ed Miliband as Prime Minister, or definitely Jeremy Corbyn would be President or something by now, uh, James. And it's a, probably a good reminder yeah, that we or... should probably spend... It is, it is so annoying, because I know I shouldn't spend as much time on it, but then I do pick up loads of information I know. for work. For and, well, I think the, kind of, I think the, sort of the thing I always sort of find depressing is I really want to believe that Twitter is irrelevant, but then you know that every single journalist and every single politician and all the kind of people you know in the tops of their respective industries spend all their time on Twitter, are incredibly influenced by the things they see on Twitter, always, whenever they do anything, are thinking about what the reaction on Twitter will be. And although it's probably relevant to a lot of people, probably too many people who 
whose voices matter or are heard disproportionately care too much about it. And then it kind of becomes important. Therefore, all those people have to care about it. Therefore, it's important. It's kind of horrible, like vicious cycle of this sort of meaningless thing that's now become, I think, probably genuinely important for the way that, you know, politics happens and journalism happens. Um, and we're all complicit. And yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a disaster. <laughs> my characteristic pessimistic take <laughs> but it's amazing what you can do if you turn it off I went on a holiday deleted it from my phone uh, read three books yeah it's <laughs> extraordinary <laughs> yeah it's, uh, I mean obviously it helps that I also wasn't working so I could spend the whole time lying on a sun lounge to plan the way through but books, did you but... have to fight the urge to read a little bit have a quick look well, because, um, yeah, because then news sort of bubbles up. It's somehow it reaches you and you think, oh, I ought to go back to it. I ought to... But, um, but actually, this, the, the satisfaction of getting to the end of a book is so much better than... Well, you can't get to the end of Twitter. <laughs> I suppose that's, um, that's part of the, 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 the doom-scrollingness of it, that you, you can never feel like you've finished it. Um, I, found it too, I, I found it took about six months to get off it properly, i.e. to literally never look at it. To not kind of, you know, run in every now and then when, when a news story was breaking or something was happening and have a quick look. What, what's, that process I, is about what, six months. I think what sort of weaned, I mean, I'm still on it, but what weaned me off a bit was when you sort of start, if you start catching yourself typing out things that you're going to tell the world, incredibly trivial things you tell people on Twitter, and you just think, why on earth am I, and if you start thinking, why on earth am I saying this, then you've got very quickly into an existential spiral and you're like, the sort of odd, the oddness of like you know standing up in front of thousands of people and telling them that you had a sandwich for lunch. As soon as you start to realise that, I think it becomes very hard to tweet ever again. Um, that's what I did to myself, I think. It, 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 I think recently the most cross my wife has got with me about anything was when I shared my Wordle score. <laughs> mm. <laughs> I'm, I'm with her. I'm with I'm I'm with Mrs. Chorley on that one. <laughs> Today's Wordle answer is not a word. I'm very annoyed about it. I would agree with you on that, uh, India. I mean, I'm not saying that we're ready to talk about Wordle because we can't talk about politics, but I would agree with you. It's not, it I thought It's not that. a word. It's not a Thank word. Um, finally, then, let's talk about exams and the idea that uh, GCSEs and A-levels might be all online. The end of pen and paper. The big arm ache and the shaking of the biro might be a thing of the past, James. Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably it's probably about time, isn't it? Because I when I was at when I was on my final years at school, we type everything was typed, and then you suddenly go into the exam, and I would just, I mean, I, I've got terrible handwriting, and I'd feel like I'd forgotten how to write. I would just cover the pages in this huge horrible scrawl. It does see, it does seem a bit weird and, and, and archaic, and like I mean, kids nowadays, how much how much are they ever writing anything by hand? I mean, they should probably be doing their exams by TikTok dance or something, shouldn't they? Really, um, it does seem kind of. Yeah, it's sort of mad that we're only just getting around to it. It'll probably seem like a, I think it'll seem like a strange sort of anachronistic period when everyone had iPhones and computers, but still wrote their still wrote out their exam their exam answers by hand. That was a bit of a weird five years where everyone like so bizarre that those two technologies overlapped. Yeah, it's probably overdue. I think. <gasps> what about you? Do you, do you ever write anything longhand? Well, I try to. I, I really I love handwriting. I love the act of handwriting. I love looking at people's handwriting. I slightly judge people by their handwriting. And I think handwriting has been on the way out for quite a long time. This is its final, you know, final nail in its coffin. Kind of younger people will evolve to have giant thumbs and giant index fingers, a bit like lobster. <laughs> and and, and won't really kind of use their hand. You, know, you could probably eat a, a pincer movement. Um, I, think it's, I think it's a terrible shame. I mean, I, I, I get it. And also I think you think differently 
when you're ty- I mean I can only I can only write for work by typing I find my thoughts are much clearer if I try and write longhand it's less successful um and also I can't e- you know even I arguing waving the flag for handwriting I can do maybe a side of a4 and then it all becomes completely illegible which is awful because unlike um James and unlike you you know I used to write everything you know you had to you wrote giant exam papers and theses and huge long essays everything longhand and while I think that it's harder to think when you write longhand I just I love I I think there's something so wonderful about handwriting and it's going to go and it's really sad I I agree that actually you 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 think I'm younger than I am India because I definitely almost everything at school I wrote Longhand. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it was it was a, great, a moment of great excitement if you handed in one sheet of A4 that you'd done on a computer with yeah. you know, one clip clip art picture at the top. But no, almost yeah. all you know essays and homework and all that was done longhand. I mean, you know, actually, um, I use I still use shorthand loads. Do you? Um, yeah. That's interesting. Um, I wonder how many people still use shorthand who aren't political. Journalist. journalist, yeah, yeah. Because I mean, in part because, particularly if I'm on the radio, because I thought well, I never use it now on the radio. But if, if you know, we're listening to speeches and that sort of thing, I have to try and, mm. um, you know, summarise them, getting it all down in shorthand. I mean, reading it back is always the, the um, challenge. But um, mm. yes, compulsory shorthand for everyone. That's my, <laughs> that's that, that's on my uh, list. Of really good book. skill, really handy skill. Yeah, yeah. Because sometimes, because you know, you don't always have. I mean, it, you probably do have always have your phone with you, but not always have something that you can record from. And if you do well, record you it, you have to go back and transcribe it. And there was, yeah. let's be honest, there's nothing. AI, the best thing that's ever come from AI is automatic transcription websites, because transcribing a tape is just the worst. Um, uh, anyway, I'm glad we've sorted out everything there. We've, we've covered good. a lot of ground. Night at the Marriott there. India Knight and James Marriott. And of course, you can read them both in the Times and the Sunday Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is my trip up Big Ben. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. Big Ben is back. Almost. After almost five years of near total silence, it's ready to bong again. 
I've been given rare access inside the Elizabeth Tower to see up close the restoration of the most famous clock tower in the world. Now, in keeping with the British tradition of building work, it is late and over budget. But the stonemasons, glaziers, metal workers, electricians, painters, clockmakers and technicians think the wait would have been worth it. The bells fell silent back on August the 21st, 2017. MPs wept in Parliament Square when it struck for the final time. It's only been reconnected for special occasions, like Remembrance Sunday and New Year's Eve. But now, the hands on all four faces have been reattached to the Victorian clock mechanism, which contains a thousand components and weighs more than 12 tonnes. Now, I was taken on my tour of the famous clock tower by Keith Scobie Youngs from the Cumbria Clock Company, which carried out the work and for some time had the mechanism for the world's most famous clock hidden in a former cow barn in Cumbria. So this is what happened when I went up Big Ben. I mean, it's still a proper building site, isn't it? Well, it's getting there. It's getting better <laughs> each day. How many steps are there? I'm not sure. Just over 300, I think. Oh, right. I, can, I kind of try not to count. <laughs> I don't get distracted. Absolutely. Please remind me what your, your job title is, your role in the project. Well, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, just a professional turret clock horologist. <laughs> you know, with the workshops up in Cumbria, we are fully equipped to be able to undertake all the necessary conservation works. So, when you've got a clock weighing with all the components over 13 and a half tonnes, you have to have a reasonable sized workshop. Yes. And they couldn't really kind of give them that space in Parliament. So hence our involvement. And for, for you, this must be, this is sort of your World Cup, isn't it, working on Big Ben? <laughs> I think absolutely. For many reasons, mainly because, well, one of the reasons being it is the world's most famous clock tower. Yeah. And secondly, it was a massive step forward in public timekeeping. And so, because of that, it gives you a chance as a professional to understand the thoughts of those early clockmakers. Yeah, you know, sort of reaching the point where we're both a bit out of breath now. Yeah. <laughs> We've come this far now. <laughs> So that, that, that being, no, those are two good reasons for this being, as you call it, my World Cup. Yeah. And just seeing everybody work as a team. Yes. Has been just brilliant. And everybody from the Palace Clock team through all our own conservators have just done this wonderful amount of work and everybody's so proud of it. Uh, how, when you talk about the team, how many people are we talking about? So we employed 22 people and everybody at the Cumbria Clock Company's worked on it at, yeah, some, point. at some point. I suppose because there's so many different elements. There's also the clock elements quite important, but there's the glass and the stone and everything else which has been going on. There's been some amazing craftsmanship yeah. done here, I think. And I think that's really good. Yeah. It's like a 96 metre beacon to heritage craft skills. So, you know... When the general public look at it, they should be proud of all the people who've done the work on it. Really. Yeah, rather than standing and looking and thinking, oh dear, that was a bit crumbly. Yeah. Uh, which is how it had been for such a long time. 
I think because nowadays we're struggling to get people interested in heritage yeah. craft, I think this could kind of be that catalyst, perhaps. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. What's that in there? It's the clock. Is that the clock in there? Do you want to unzip? This, this, <laughs> seems, very, this seems like a very dramatic entrance. <laughs> which side shall I do? This one? Yeah, whichever. Look at this. So Keith, this is the clock? Yes. I don't know what I was expecting. I don't know, it's, it's wider and flatter than I thought. This is the first flat bed turret clock designed and made. Yeah. All the others had been a completely different design. The beauty of this clock was that it allowed large dials, 23 and a half feet in diameter, to be driven accurately. And that's down to this little thing ticking away in the corner at the back. Right. And that's referred to as Lord Grimthorpe's double three-legged gravity escapement. Of course it is. Yes. <laughs> Trips off the tongue. Yeah. And that's impulsing a two-seconds pendulum. And that's why, if you look at the dial, every step the one is here two in the seconds. Yes. Okay. Okay? Yeah. Now, a two-seconds pendulum is 15, well, in this case, it's 15 feet long in length. Um, and it weighs... 160 kilos. Wow. And it's incredibly accurate. We've got this now keeping to oh, well under a second a week. And does it, the bigger it is, does that make it more accurate? Um, you can then go into the world of technical horology and in a word, yes. Yeah. Something, a heavy pendulum, this is not hanging off the clock itself, it's actually hanging off the building. Yeah. So it's, it's really solid. Yeah. And then it has this gravity escapement which actually impulses the pendulum. And that's what gives this its accuracy. And it, what, what, what the revolution in it was that it, it doesn't matter what happens to the hands. They can be, you know, have the wind buttering them. They can have the rain, the cold or anything. It won't affect the pendulum. And that because it's right in the middle of the building and protected from all of that. And also just the way the pendulum yeah. is impulsed. So that just made this clock so accurate. And so that's why I kind of refer to it as the smartphone of 1859. You know, it, it, it gave Londoners accurate time. And so this was one of a kind, the first of its kind? The very first gravity escapement ever fitted to a clock. And how many of, the, how many of them now exist? Well, after uh, the chap who designed it, Lord Grimthorpe, he didn't believe in patents. So as soon as this was out, all the clockmakers started really to copy it. it. And, th and that kind of made public tie keeping throughout the UK really accurate. Everybody, everybody started to do Everybody started doing gravity escapement. And this is, this is uh, his name all along the bottom of here? Yeah. This clock was made We're in the year of our Lord 1854 by Frederick Dent of the Strand and the Royal Exchange clockmaker to the Queen and the designs of Edmund Beckett. Denison, QC. Who was Lord Grimthorpe. Excuse me, I'm standing sort of in underneath one of the, what do you call these bits going out to the... Dial motion works. Dial motion, that's going out to, the, uh, to one of the clock faces. And this is, it is a mirror image, there's sort of two big cogs, two smaller ones next to it, all working off of the, the mechanism in the, in the centre. Yeah. And uh, does it, I mean, looking at it, nice big cogs with big teeth, is it easier working on something like this than a tiny watch with all the tiny intricate pieces? Completely two different skills. Yeah. You know, I, I would never work on a watch. Right. Oh, I did, the last time I worked on the watch was when I was at Birmingham Polytechnic <laughs> uh, 39 years ago. I think a watchmaker would run away screaming from yeah. this. I mean... Is it not, similar in any way? 
other than, yeah, it other is, than it's it is, it is similar. I mean, it does tell the time. It uses a different method of regulating itself, but there are a lot of similarities. The chime barrel, the quarter barrel here, I mean, that weighs 760 kilos. Wow. That's perhaps the heaviest assembly in horology in this country or perhaps the world. And so it's a completely different discipline. Let's talk about your secret mission and how <laughs> you were working on this in your workshop in right. Cumbria. Yeah. First of all, how all of this was in your workshop? Yes. So you had Apart to from the frame, the big yeah. cast iron frame. So you had to take it all apart? We did. We dropped it down this weight shaft here. Right. We lifted the grills up. That goes straight down to ground level, where yeah. we were when we came through the door. Yeah. So then we could take it out through there, load it onto uh, uh, transportation, and took it up to Cumbria. How do you, anyone who's ever put anything together, or taken anything apart and put it back together, and find you've got some bits left over, how, did you, how do you make sure that you know where everything goes so that when you took it up, it was all there, and then you brought it back again? A lot of it is just very careful labelling yeah. and wrapping and boxing. Yeah. So, so you make sure you do that. And then you just follow that procedure through the workshops. Yeah. And, you know, we've come back, we've put it all together, and there's the odd little, perhaps, washer missing. <laughs> uh, but nothing, and I haven't got any spare parts. I wouldn't have had any spare that's parts. That's a good, that's good. Uh, yes. That's a good <laughs> um, And how much of it is the original? Did you have to replace stuff? Is so, it just a case so of cleaning the, it up? This is an interesting story. Uh, the clock was built and put in here in 1859. It, then, in 1976, uh, there was a big disaster when this fly fan here, mm. the shaft broke. Oh, right. And the weight went to the ground. And it threw this barrel out of the, uh, the frame. Wow. And it hit the ceiling and ended up over there. Right, it was an absolute that, disaster. That sounds bad. And it broke its back down where that line is. And that's where you've got... Oh, on, the, on this frame here. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was in a heck of a state. And it was, uh, at the time, looked after by a company based in London who I actually did my, my improving with after leaving college. And a chap called John Vernon came up here and with eight hours, he got it working again. And in a way, he is the reason why this clock is still here, because at the time they didn't know whether they'd be able to keep it running. Right. Or get it back to being running. And he said, yes, we can do it. Otherwise, it would have been replaced by an electric motor there. So all this part, a lot of this piece here on our right has been remade. Okay. And I'd say out of the quarter train, we're most likely looking at 60% new. Right. So that's, that's that. There is a bit of, you know, grandfather's axe in it where there's been, you know, two heads in each other. But, you know, fundamentally, yeah, yeah. it is all original. Yeah. And, and the same applies for the striking train. Obviously, over the years, little bits have been replaced. In, in 162 years, things do wear out. So, you know, things have been replaced. Nowadays, with the techniques we've got, we can rebuild and resurface. Right. They couldn't do that then. Now, all the previous clockmakers had to do running repairs. So I'd never judge them on the quality of their repairs because they were made to kind of get it quickly. Yeah, yeah. We can't have it stopped. It can't be stopping all the time. So what we've been able to do is to tidy up those repairs. Okay. And, and I never, ever would criticise any of them because it was a completely, you know, I was in a privileged position, or we as the Palace Clock yeah. Team and uh, uh, the Cumbria Clock Company, were in a privileged position to take time and redo it. And I'd like to think now um, it's as close to the original design yeah. and the original finish that Stanford, Denton Grimthorpe yeah. brought it in in 1859. Yeah. 
And, you know, again, I, mean, I know I keep on going on about heritage skills and heritage craft skills. As long as this is the reason why it's important to keep them alive in this country, because as long as we have clockmakers, this clock will work. Yeah. The only reason this will become redundant is not because this clock wears out, it's because we lose the skills. There'll be nobody to fix it. They have some kind of device up there that must be synchronised to trigger off an explosion in Parliament when the minute hand reaches 11.45. So? It mustn't reach 11.45. Now, anyone who's seen the 1978 film version of The 39 Steps will remember the dramatic ending, which sees the star, Robert Powell, smash one of the glass panels on the clock face of the Big Ben clock and climb out, hanging onto the minute hand to stop a bomb going off. So now, as Keith Scobie Youngs from the Cumbria Clock Company continues my tour of the Elizabeth Tower, I suddenly find myself standing behind the most famous clock face in the world. Oh, wow. <laughs> this is the proper... This is the 39 steps, isn't it? So yeah, I just, just I, climb out through I just knock this. I mean, actually looking at it, I'm not sure I could fit through there. No, I can't. So this is looking out on Parliament Square. Amazing. Amazing. But this goes to show the standard of the workmanship done. Yeah. John Renton's did the glass, and it's absolutely stunning. And it's all, it's all original? This, well, it's Bar. all... No, it's, it's a glass. John knows more about it than I do, but it's the a glass made especially for this and it just looks glorious when you you know there's so many different glass out there that when you look at this one from outside the movement in it is beautiful you can't replace glass with plastic yeah it's a completely different game so that's all original yeah then behind us we've got these so in front of us we've got the amazing you know the white glass the black well it's not black right is it it's all brown almost the yeah this is just yeah metal work and then behind us big circular lights which obviously light up the clock face they at do. night and these are modern i'm given to understand led lighting system okay and what um presumably this wasn't here originally so how was it lit before there's been a series of different lighting um things here um there's a different set of sodium lights before that another set of electric lights yeah and originally it was gas Oh, wow. And so on the clock mechanism, there's yeah. still the switching to turn the gas turn on and the off. Turn the gas on and off to light it up. Absolutely. Incredible. And there's some lovely sketches of people doing the gas lighting behind here. Yeah. And that's hence these rungs which went up. So there's sort of metal handles that stick yeah. up. So you could literally climb up and light the gas. Yeah. Health and safety would love that. Yeah, I think, I think LED lighting seems like a much better, <laughs> safer way of going. Oh, this is incredible. What a thing. Yeah. Standing right behind the clock face of Big Ben. And it's just, it's just you, you kind of get that feeling of size. You've got to realise in 1859, yeah. these were, we believe, the biggest dials in the world. Yeah. And, and it was the first clock dial which could actually keep accurate time. And so that, even, that, if, even if I stood on your shoulders from here, I couldn't reach the centre where the, where the... Well, I never made six foot. Yeah. You're about the same as me. Yeah. So no, we wouldn't get I think it would take it. three of us, wouldn't it? It's massive. <laughs> just trying to get a sense of the scale of it. It's enormous. Matthew, nice to see you. Uh, nice Matthew to see you. Now, um, remind me of your, your job in all of this. Uh, I'm chair of the project board, which is overseeing all the work. Now, these, tell me about these lights, because these are like the sort of modern LED dome lights you might put in a child's bedroom, but they are lighting up the most famous clock in the world. So, yeah, we've got this set of lights behind each of the four dials, so at night they will illuminate the dials and you'll get the full effect of that beautiful glass, which is a replica of the original Victorian glass, yeah. which replaced the slightly substandard glass that was put in in the last century. So we're taking it back to its roots. 
There's always been light behind the dials. This is state-of-the-art. It's LED lighting. It's energy efficient, which is useful because it obviously costs much less money. It also can be operated, so most of the time it'll be plain white light, but if we want to light up the dials for a special occasion, you know, World AIDS Day or um, Earth one of those big events, yeah. we can actually now program that really easily, almost any colour you want. Any um, so you could, you could have a green Big Ben or a red Big Ben, whatever you like? Well, as ever, decisions on this will be taken by, <laughs> you know, the, the appropriate yeah, committee of MPs yes. who decided these things. You can't but, just start we, No, <laughs> but we can now deliver that much more easily and cheaply than, than we could before when we were fiddling around with colour fil films yeah, yeah, yeah. and temporary lighting. Right, Belfry, let's Belfry. do it. Keep going up. More stairs. Going. More stairs, I'm afraid. Wow, look at that. That is Big Ben. It is. Why is it? What, first of all, why is it called Big Ben? It's absolutely certain. There are two theories. One, <laughs> there was a commissioner of works, you know, uh, uh, yeah, at the time called yeah. Sir Benjamin Hall, uh, and it was sort of possibly never happened. There's also a story it's named after a, a famous prize fighter of the day called Ben, who was known as Big Ben because he was a, a big he was a big boxer. So we're not absolutely certain, but uh, uh, but it's been known as Big Ben since it's been known since as Big Ben like, since yeah. you know almost since it's been yeah. here. And it is the, this is the famous bell, and obviously these are the four quarter bells, which chime every 15 minutes. What's incredible is having been downstairs looking at the clock mechanism, how sort of small and intricate they are, and then it sort of works its way all the way up the building well, to chime these enormous bells. We think how far away, when, if you can remember when we, Big Ben was regular, how, how far away you can hear it. Yeah. Uh, and so it has to be pretty big to be that yeah. audible. Um, and it's going to be quite interesting when we reconnect the clock and the bells because there are a lot of people who work in Parliament who never have heard it. Yeah. The whole of the 2019... How long, how long, how long has it been We, we, we closed, for? we turned the bells off uh, in the summer of 2017. Yeah. Um, and obviously we sounded them for New Year's Eve and Remembrance Sunday and Armistice Day all the way through, but we haven't regularly chimed the bells since August 2017. Yeah. So uh, there are a lot of people who've come to work in Parliament, a lot of members of Parliament. Yeah. Who've never heard it chiming regularly? Never had it as that reminder and that they're it late. May come a bit of a shock. Yeah, if you hear exactly. a bell ring every 15 minutes. Now, what would it be like if we were here and it, were, it was the top of the hour? Is it possible to stand here? You'd have ear defenders in. Yeah. Uh, I've been here when it happened on a tour years ago, so yeah. you, you can you're lined, you can be lined up. What you would hear just as we reached midday, say. Yeah. You would these hammers. Yeah. You see, each bell has a hammer, yeah. including Big Ben, and these four bells at midday would play out the Westminster chimes. Yeah. The whole, the whole thing, and then at exactly twelve o'clock, the main hammer, which is round the side yeah. on Big Ben, would then chime twelve, and he's very, very loud. Yeah. So it's all right coming here and doing it once, but you wouldn't want to be <laughs> on a daily basis. You wouldn't want to be working up here yeah. with it going off every fifteen minutes. And the other thing, famously about Big Ben, in fact. One of the things about the project is Big Ben is the only bit we didn't do anything to. Uh, the bells are fine, uh, so we renovated the hammers, so you can see like all the rest of this cast iron, yeah. it's been taken apart, cleaned, conserved, and put back together basically like it's brand new. Yeah. Uh, and you can see on all the cast iron here we've done the same thing. Every single bit of the, I forget how many hundreds or thousands of components was taken apart like Meccano. Yeah taken off to Shepley's up in Yorkshire, you know, cleaned, repaired and brought back and reassembled. Uh, and all that time we get the bells here. 
But nothing's happened to the bells. No, nothing needed doing to the bells. Uh, Big Ben, of course, cracked back in 1860. And if you, if you move around, you, can't, you can just see, I'm not sure you can quite get there, around the side, you can see at the bottom here a hole. Oh, yeah. And that's where we, were, you know, we cut out where it had cracked. And we moved it round so the hammer stopped hitting that bit. Okay. You know, so that was that was. So the, the hammer was hitting a different part. Yeah, and that, that was the solution rather than recast because the bell had been recast once already. It cracked the first one. Yeah. And was taken away, recast, and brought back. Then it cracked again. At which point it was just agreed, let's not recast it again, because it's quite heavy to get from Whitechapel Bell Foundry to here anyway. So how do you we even? Just, I mean, how did you even get it up here? And bearing, I mean, you know, I know you've had state of the art. Yeah. Scaffolding and lifts and how all that. How did they originally get it up here? Well, yeah, what was available in 1859? Yeah, manpower. Yeah, it was hauled up. It was brought from Whitechapel on a cart drawn by, I think, 12 horses. Amazing. There's some great <laughs> prints in the, the yeah the 19th century yeah. coming coming over, you know, coming up the road. Yeah, it's a great procession. And then but, what? Just ropes and pulleys and yeah. Sheer I mean, I, I am not the historian. Yeah. But that yeah the whole well, the whole thing was built. Yeah. By by guys, yeah. you know, with wooden scaffold they, they built it scaffold the scaffolding went up at the same time as the town yeah. they built it from the inside yeah. out uh, then, then they hauled everything up uh, and put it into position so well, it's an amazing piece of engineering all just done through you know brute, brute yeah, force yeah, yeah. Um, amazing and it wasn't absolutely it wasn't the world's most popular bell when it was first installed I mean famously when it was switched off or they were trying to work out the cracks there were members of parliament in both houses saying Oh, thank goodness they've turned that terrible bell off. You know, oh, really? Awful noise. And if we have to have it back on, could it not sound while the house is sitting? So, like the Eiffel Tower, which is hugely unpopular when it was yeah. first unveiled by lots of, with lots of people, yeah, it, didn't, it wasn't the kind of, you know, people got used to it and then grew to love it. Yes. But it was and, then, it and then we had MPs weeping when it was yeah. turned off. Incredible. Well, you know, it's been here for a very long time now. I think people will look forward to having it back again. Um, and when will that be? Well, the whole project will be finished by this summer, so yeah. everything off site, and we'll hand it back to Parliament. Uh, we will reconnect the clock and bells before then, so I'm not giving you a date yet because, as you've seen, we are still working on the clock mechanism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Making sure Having it's come this far, we want to sort of test it to death. Yeah. And then when we're absolutely certain it's okay, we will, we will announce the, the yeah, big yeah. day. But, you know, I really, we really want that to, to go off very well, so yes. we're being hyper cautious. But Absolutely no, it, right. not, not long now, I yeah. will certainly true. It, now we've taken all the scaffolding on the outside, we've, I've suddenly been reminded of these extraordinary views you get of the river or of other parts of the Palace of Westminster. I'm just going to wonder if I see, can I see the office? <laughs> which, which way is the shard? Uh, that way. Oh, it's back that way, isn't it? Right. Yeah, there is the news bill. I can literally see, I can see the Times Radio Studios. Right, well, a bit of way to make sure they know you're hard at work. <laughs> I'm hard at work. I'm very much definitely hard at work. I was thinking how much this view must have changed since the guys are up here building. Well, yeah, especially looking out that way, where it's uh, you know it's all skyscrapers and glass and the only and familiar that. building might have been St Thomas, the old bit of St Thomas's Hospital. Yeah, right? everything else and, and Lambeth Palace further down the Lambeth river. Lambeth Palace. Yeah. Everything else is uh, is new. London's always changing, but Absolutely. Big Ben's right in the middle of it. Big Ben is you know been keeping time the whole time. Honestly, I was like a schoolboy up there. I just really enjoyed it. And I actually managed to go even higher up uh, to the very top of the tower to see the Ayrton light. It's the lantern at the top of the Elizabeth Tower, which is lit up when either House of Parliament is sitting. Well, there's still no date set for when Big Ben will sound again. But hopefully by this summer, anyone in Westminster will once again hear those famous chimes.
That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 